Welcome to CTSNet to Go, bringing your discussions about the most relevant topics in cardiothoracic surgery. The Cardiothoracic Surgery Network, known as CTSNet, aims to connect the global cardiothoracic surgical community through communication, collaboration, education, and interaction among cardiothoracic surgeons and their teams across the globe. Learn more at ctsnet.org. My name is Shanda Blackman, and I'm just one of the hosts of CTSNet2Go. In this podcast, you will be exposed to one of the roundtables that will show you what surgeons today are talking about. Welcome to this CTSNet interview uh, with Shanda Blackman talking about uh, safety in minimally invasive surgery. My name's Joel Dunning and we're here in Barcelona 2016. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Joel. Um, it's great to be here. Yeah, thank you. Um, one of the most important things uh, in minimally invasive surgery is safety and I think it really is a barrier to people uh, entering the minimally invasive world because of anxieties about that. Uh, so I think today it'd be great for us to talk a little bit about about how people can get over that barrier and what uh, they should do uh, when they have uh, critical events. Uh, so, so what do you think the key elements are of, uh, of addressing uh, important complications like this? Well, I think as surgeons, when we train our residents, we do a great job of training them how to do a basic surgery. But we do a poor job teaching our residents how to plan for events and teaching our residents how to address an emergency if it happens. And unfortunately, unlike the airline pilots, we don't take our residents through different drills. If you have uh, a river landing of an airplane, if you have uh, engine failure. And so I think the, the whole group of surgeons are starting to change their minds about that. And we're starting to build it into our curriculum. And we're starting to take residents through drills and take our teams through drills. And those are the two critical things that we have to do. Surgeons bringing in new technology have to plan for what do we do when the new technology goes wrong. Uh, we have to teach our residents how to plan for those events so that they can start to think about how they will manage them when they get out. And then we have to actually start to think ourselves very carefully, if we do something that's not perfect, how will we go back and do it over again and be very transparent with our colleagues and our patients and our residents about how we would do things different because that's how we learn. And, uh, and I think the training is really important uh, and I believe you actually do train people in wet labs and go through things. What are the specific things you train them to do? So when I talk to the residents about an emergency, the first thing we do is we talk about having a culture of safety in the room where we make sure we do a timeout at the beginning of the case. We talk about what we're going to do if something goes wrong. We always talk about the drill. The basic drill is learning where the oxygen emergency shutoff valve is, making sure everyone in the team understands the activation of an event. We declare that it's an event so that people know we may have some pulmonary artery bleeding going on. We may have something. So communication is the first step. And then once you communicate that you might be having an event, it's very, very carefully planned. We call the anesthesiologist into the room or a second anesthesiologist into the room. We don't type and cross patients for blood, so we do actually bring blood, O-negative blood, into the room. It's so rare that it is still cost-effective to do that if you are concerned. 
and then we start the drill. You know, we bring people in. We always have a sponge on the back table. We always have any anyone else in the room knows that at that point you have to be quiet so that everyone can hear and communicate. And we frequently have a, a, a protocol of bringing another surgeon into the room because even though the surgeon that's doing the event or managing the event is quite competent, it's very helpful at that point, the risk, the error, the problems, the risk is great. So you really want to have another good set of hands on the other side of the table. Yeah, and I absolutely love your concept of bringing a colleague into the room. We all have in our minds, you know, that's not success if I bring my colleague in, but actually it's a brilliant idea, isn't it? It is, and I think a lot of times pride keeps people from bringing in other people, but imagine if you're a race car driver and your car's malfunctioning, you want the best people in the room, you know? You, you want everything you can to make everything work perfectly. And so I think the, the room for error is really not, it becomes very narrow. And the biggest problem that we see with events is that the response to the event is usually the thing that causes the problem rather than the event itself. Because most pulmonary artery bleeding can be managed with just pressure and patience and topical hemostatic agents. But unfortunately, people try to do crazy things once they start to see a little bit of bleeding and that's where the errors occur. Yeah, absolutely. And that would be your recommendation. You know, if you've got to bleed, what stop, don't push into it. So yeah, use wide right. base swabs or bring the lung over. Uh, right. And that's the way to keep safe, isn't it? Yeah. And then we set and the then, clock. We yeah. apply pressure and I have no sense of time when yeah. I'm in the operating room. Most surgeons don't. So I say to my team, start the clock. Two minutes from now, I'm going to take a little peek. And it's crazy. One minute into it, I'm already wanting to take a look. Yeah. But we'll wait, and then after two minutes have gone by, we'll take a little look. But I think the older I get and the more experienced I get, the more proactive I get. You start to see the cues, the tension on the vessel. You start to recognize things that will lead to an injury. And a really good experienced surgeon does things to avoid the event. And so you start to do things to steer away from the event before it happens. Um, if the first time you have an event is the first time that you've thought about, oh my gosh, this is terrible pulmonary artery bleeding, what am I going to do? If you've never thought about it before, you're probably not going to react very well. So we really believe that people should think about everything that can go wrong and plan for it. Yeah, uh, I've talked to quite a few people about, you know, what equipment do we need on the table? Some people say you should always have a retractor. Some people say you should have an extra sucker because endoscopic suckers don't suck as much, you know. Do you yeah. have any strong advice or what do you have for just emergencies on your back table? So we have a sponge on a stick. We have a retractor always available and it's a small retractor. Often the big retractors are very difficult if you're just enlarging the anterior utility port. So we have a small retractor, and we do have two suckers on the field at the, whole, at the, the, the time of all surgeries. So that's sort of a standard for us. Mm -hmm. um, the, the biggest problem, I think, for managing events, though, that we um, had to change some culture is we, we don't have a pump in the room, and we don't ever call a pump into the room. As far as I, since I've been at Mayo Clinic, we haven't called a pump into the room for an emergency for a VAT. I, I don't think that you necessarily need that. But I do think that you do need a big list of backup support staff and backup emergency drills ready to back you up when you do have something. 
Yeah, certainly in our own uh, institution, before every case, we talk through three emergencies. The first is controlled bleeding. The second is what we're going to do for uncontrolled bleeding. And the mm -hmm. third one is, what about if they arrest and it's not our fault? Because right. they're on their side. So we talk right. about that. And the controlled bleed, I stop. I'm not allowed to do anything till the anesthesiologist tells me they're ready. And that needs blood in the room, cell saver, and for right. everybody to be calm and controlled. And, uh, and yeah, I totally agree with you that a lot of people talk about, you know, a pump, a bypass machine from the era of mixed practice. <laughs> but actually, it's the last thing we need in the room, isn't it? Right. Like clutter it up, uh, and, and that's not what we want, is it? No, so. no. Yep. So I thought what we might do is we might watch a few bleeding events. Uh, so we've got a we've got a couple of clips, okay. uh, and uh, hopefully uh, we will have a look and you know maybe just talk through. Uh, I'll maybe tell you what what was happening. To, okay. And in the spirit of openness, there is a chance it was me. Uh, well, I have to say, Joel, I think it's really refreshing that you're showing bleeding events because I think so many surgeons around the country are reluctant to show events that happen in the OR. And for us, that's the greatest moment where our residents learn. And yeah. so I, I applaud you for this. Yeah, and I, yeah. <laughs> one day we'll have a database of hundreds of them and people yes. would love to share, but there we go. So here we are. So I was doing a, a uniportal uh, left lower lobectomy. So at the top of the screen, I've just divided a bit of the fissure. This is the, the suckers over the pulmonary artery, and I'm looking for the basal pulmonary artery. I thought this was the apical segmental just here, uh, right. going down to the lower lobe. So I thought, I'll just clear off this tissue. Uh, and there I go, I've, I've bled. So now, just as you said, you know, I pressed, I waited a bit, and then I've got my wide base sponge stick uh, over it. Uh, and, then, and then once I'd hopefully controlled that a little bit, I pressed for a while. And then every time I was removing the peanut, it was bleeding, as you can see there. Right. So I brought in a hemostat. This, hap this happened to be uh, some Tacosil, which I really like. And there we've got uh, uh, our bleeding under control. Um, just as we move on on this video, so, so I'm quite into when you control the bleeding, just go and do something else for as long right. as you can. And that's my favorite yeah. thing to do. And it, as a surgeon, we hate to sit there and do nothing in the middle of the yeah. case. Yeah. So the best thing you can do when you have some oozing that you don't think is catastrophic, just sort of irritating, is to put some pressure, put your topical hemostatic on, go to another area and work, and then come back. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So we did press with the uh, sponge stick. We waited until my anesthetist has said, blood in the room, cell saver, we're ready. Uh, okay. We made sure we had our retractor, extra sucker uh, on the back table, and then we carried on. Luckily, I could take uh, my equipment Taking off. Taking the pulmonary vein. Yeah, so, so then we went and did something else. And actually, it turned out, you know, I had a good old hour mucking about getting the rest out. So pulmonary vein, bronchus, and then this allowed us to change approach. And then we just did a, a pulmonary artery last in the fissure. So, um, and is that the sort of thing you would recommend for a sort of bleed like this? So, uh, addressing the bleed like this for a beginner, I would say this is a point where you might want to consider opening electively. Yeah. People always look at opening a VATS lobectomy as a big event or as a problem. And I think for most people, there is still some equipoise about whether or not open or VATS is better which means that VATS is better for patients, I believe, and I think based on the evidence that it's less painful for patients, less blood loss, they go home earlier. Many, of, many studies have shown that. The big question is oncologic efficacy, right? And I think we're even starting to address that with the VATS. As long as you do a good lymph node dissection, the less uh, inflammation, um, all of that equals pot potentially a better survival. Mm -hmm. So I think the key is 
if you open to a thoracotomy, that is not a failure. And the more you feel comfortable to open and, and get good exposure before you get into trouble, the better. So I do encourage people to open. And often, even if I plan on doing an open case, I'll put the camera in, look around, and see what I see, if, if it's something that I might want to do some part of the surgery with VATS, and then open. And maybe that would count on a database as a conversion from VATS to open, even if I planned on doing part with the camera, part with the open. But I'm willing to do that. I think that that's a great tool. So um, I, I encourage people that are beginners with that type of an event, probably they should open because they feel more comfortable addressing it. But for an advanced surgeon like you, I think uh, going ahead and taking the fissure is, is completely acceptable. Yeah, and I couldn't agree more. Um, Quite a few years ago, the, the BTS said, you know, you needed an open and close rate for, for cancer type things. And I think probably we need a conversion rate in VATS, don't we? Right. You know, we should be encouraged, you know, you, you should have about a 5% or a 4% because if you're not doing that, you're not putting in the camera to have a look. But actually, we, we absolutely don't want to have a, I've never had a conversion in a year, do we? It's and what really you important. really don't want to have is a death with a late conversion. I think that would be... Uh, a sign that there was some bad judgment going on. If someone's bleeding and you're not controlling the bleeding, you have to convert. So if you're having trouble and you're just pushing, pushing, pushing because for some reason you don't want to open, that's a sign of a problem. And so surgeons need to feel comfortable to convert, comfortable showing their videos, comfortable talking with the residents about what may or may not have gone right or wrong. And you know, if surgeons are new at VATS and they're not used to sewing in the chest, I would say they should never try to sew a pulmonary artery. I think that is a good way to turn a small tear into a huge tear. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. This is a damaged vessel, not right. a normal vessel. Yeah, right. So um, let's watch another video. Okay, let's. <laughs> so you may recall I have controlled bleeding and I have uncontrolled okay, bleeding. So this, so this is I think perhaps I, the uncontrolled Well, drill. there's a small chance. Uh, so this is a left upper lobectomy. It happens to be posterior approach. The bronchus is, is being pushed on, trying to divide some vessels, and that's that's the pulmonary artery. But uh, here in contrast, uh, uh, we had a very large bleed. So Shanda, maybe I can ask you, you know, faced with something like this, um, what would you say are the key elements to control or to, to deal with a difficult situation like that? Well, so the first thing that I see the assistant doing is they're pulling up on the lung and they're not helping you. They're making that bleed worse. So the first thing your assistant needs to do, whoever's driving the camera needs to pull the camera back so you don't soil the camera and all of a sudden you're looking at red and you have no idea what's going on in, this, in the chest. Mm -hmm. So pull the camera back and make sure you have a better stereoscopic view of what's happening inside the chest. The second response is to take away the tension, take away the retraction and push down. And frequently you can take that pressure off the pulmonary artery with the clamp that's on the lung and just push it down and use that to compress the pulmonary artery and control the bleeding. With that volume of bleeding, I think I probably would have immediately pushed down, pulled the camera back, kept the camera in the chest because it's in a separate port and converted to an anterior thoracotomy. And I usually make it just big enough to where I can get my hand in and I can blindly get my hand in around the hilum and hold the hilum until I've actually gotten a good view and made sure that I don't have active bleeding. And once you get your hand around the hilum, a really nice trick for a situation like this 
is that you can actually bring a chipwood clamp or some type of a large clamp through your posterior port. If you do a three-port approach, you can keep your camera in the chest, otherwise you're bringing it in through that port that your camera's in, and you can feel the tip of your finger and the tip of your thumb, and you can slide that clamp on and get the whole hilum clamped so that you have control of all the bleeding at the same time. One of the biggest problems that people find is if they have pulmonary artery bleeding, um, if they're working in a difficult field and you're expecting a problem, I don't know if you were expecting a problem or not, but if you're expecting a problem, it's a good idea to get a tourniquet around the proximal main PA. Mm -hmm. And that gives you the safety if they've had chemoradiation, if they have adhesive lymph nodes, or if you're just having a hard time dissecting, to sit, take a step back, get proximal pulmonary artery control, and then come in and work in your difficult area, and you already have a safety mechanism. But you'll still have bleeding, back bleeding from the vein. And so a lot of people forget that if you really have a lot of pulmonary artery bleeding, the best way to control all of that area is to get proximal control of the PA and control of the superior and inferior pulmonary veins, because then you won't have so much bleeding. But if you just get PA control, that won't always control it. Mm. It controls it enough to be able to do a safe enough, opening, right, isn't it? So right. it's a great idea to right. have uh, a sling round a PA in any dangerous or difficult situation. I think isn't it, it is. And, and, I think and in VATS, it's easy to get round if you're experienced, isn't it? Well, I think on the left side, it can be difficult, but it is possible mm. every case yeah. if you want. And one of the things that I want to start teaching my residents and fellows to do is to just get around the PA. That's a skill that when we did open surgery, we did it all the time. You knew your first year out from training, if you're in a situation where you don't have a lot of backup, mm. your first step of every lobectomy was to get around the PA and put a tourniquet on it before mm. you did the rest of your dissection. And when we moved to VATS, we moved away from it. So mm. I do think it's a good skill that we need to be teaching our residents. Yeah, and wet labs might be great. So just finally, in the last couple of minutes, I have an interesting, you know, I have an interest in robotics. So what do we have to do different about robotic safety? Because we're not by the patient. <laughs> yeah, I think that is a bigger problem. Um, but the group in France showed video, mm. even here at beautiful video of exactly how to practice for robotic disasters. So what they do is they actually do the drill. They set the clock. They say we have a pulmonary artery bleed. The team at the console has a role. The team at the bedside has a role. And they practice the going through the steps. And so I think that the same rules apply. Um, the only problem with the robotic uh, events is if you do have catastrophic pulmonary artery bleeding, you have to train the person that's at the patient's bedside to get immediate proximal pulmonary artery control. And if somebody at the bedside doesn't know how to do that, then you have to teach them at least when they're assisting to push down on the hilum and have good reflexes. And they may not have it. If you have a bleed like this last one that you showed, hmm. the first initial response of any curious resident is to go like that. Hmm. <laughs> Look at the bleeding. You yeah. have to teach them to go like pushing down yeah. and to actually compress any area and not yeah. to look at it. Yeah, I mean, Jean-Marc Bast and the group in Rouen are doing a great job of going through protocols and training and practicing, and I think that is the right. key in, in all bleeding, isn't it? Yeah, It is. Yeah. Well, it's been absolutely fantastic talking to you, and I think hopefully it'll be very useful for people to talk through that. And I think in the future, it's the spirit of openness that's key. You know, we need sessions on, uh, on yeah, let's see all our bleeding and how we dealt with it. And certainly that's what we do. We try and go through these afterwards, and you do as well. I think it's important. So Shanda Blackman from the Mayo Clinic, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Uh, and from myself, Joel Dunning, uh, thanks for watching. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Joel. Mm -hmm. Thank you for listening to CTS Net to Go. 
your resource for podcasts focusing on cardiothoracic surgery. Find more discussions as well as surgical videos and other cardiothoracic surgery resources at ctsnet.org. You can also keep up with CTSNet by subscribing to the YouTube channel at CTSNet Video by following at CTSNet.org on Twitter or by liking CTSNet's page on Facebook. I'm Shanda Blackman. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of CTSNet to Go. Have a great day.